Welcome back to BSA by Design, a podcast about transforming healthcare, educational, and research facilities through expert design and insight. I'm your host, Brian Moore. Thanks for joining us again. Over the next three episodes, we're going to dive into our three primary practices, our focus in these markets. In this episode, we're going to be talking to Melanie Harris, the National Healing Practice Director for BSA Life Structures, about what exactly is healing. So first, let me introduce our guest. Melanie Harris is an architect who joined BSA in April of 2020. Prior to that, she was a practice leader for HOK in the greater Tampa area and project manager in Houston, Texas. She was also a project manager and sustainability strategist for GLMV and a designer for Ziegler Cooper. As a graduate of Texas A&M, Melanie was a graduate teaching assistant. She received her Bachelor of Architecture from College of Engineering Trivedium and her Master's in Architecture from Texas A&M. She is a member of the National Council of Architectural Registration Board Certification, that's NCARB, a registered architect in Florida, Iowa, and Texas. Received her LEED AP BD plus C in 2009 and her WELL AP in 2017. In May of 2023, Melanie joined the BSA Board of Directors and for the past several years has served as our National Healing Practice Director. Welcome to BSA by Design, Melanie. Thank you, Brian. It is so exciting to be here with you. I'm, I'm glad to have you on the show. I wanted to ask uh, several questions because you're our National Healing Practice Director and, and an expert in this. And first, let, let's get the audience to know you a little bit. Where does your passion from healthcare come from? And can you kind of walk us through some of your career experiences up until this point? Absolutely. And honestly, you started with the hardest question. (laughs) I get a little bit emotional when I talk about this. So stop me if I start sounding crazy. But I was around 15 years old when my mom passed away. She had had cancer at that point for a few years. At 12, I knew she had cancer. And honestly, as a child, I didn't really think much of it. I believed in modern medicine and I was just so optimistic that she's going to be fine. She's Mm -hmm. going to be taken care of. But it kept recurring and she did ultimately pass away. Um, A few days before she passed away, my dad asked me if I wanted to go visit her in the hospital. I hated hospitals. I grew Mm. up in India. The hospitals at that point of time were very sterile, very different from the humane way that we see places of care today. And as a child, it was very hard for me to go into those spaces, not just to see my mom being sick, but also other people because they were not private rooms. So there were others in the same space as her who were also suffering. Um, And I told him that I didn't want to go visit my mom at that point because it was hard for me. And two days later, she passed away. It was very hard for me. And I, I made it my mission in life to be able to help in some way, to change how we view healthcare and to change how we think about, approach the design, and plan healthcare so that somebody, some young kid out there could have a different experience compared to what I did. Wow. So that's kind of how I got here. That's incredible. What a story. So then how, how did you get from there to here in terms of what, what brought you into architecture and 
Uh, I, I obviously know the healing side of it now, but what, what brought you into that? I have what I call a 50% analytical brain and a 50% creative. It's, I loved history and art growing up, and I equally loved physics and math and loved quantum mechanics. And as I was thinking about, you know, what can I do with my life that really plays on all the things that I'm passionate about? I didn't really know anything much about architecture. Someone gave me a dictionary of architecture when I was about 14 years old and I fell in love with it. So much so that I put my foot down and my dad wanted me to go study computer engineering because that was the cool thing to do when, you know, mm -hmm. I'm dating myself here now, <laughs> but that was the cool thing to do when right. we were looking at careers. Huh? And my relatives thought I was studying agriculture for a very long time because architecture was not a popular field in India. Huh? Mm. It was not something a lot of people prescribed to or aspired to or wanted to do. Huh? But it was just the right thing for me because it used all of those skills that I had and all of those interests that I had and blended them together. Yeah. And it was almost like this custom-made profession, if you will. Huh? Yeah. So that's how I ended up in architecture. That's fascinating. So you've been at BSA now for a few years. And as I, I mentioned, when we when we welcome you to the show, you're our national healing practice director. What does healing mean? Let's let's define what healing is to BSA. Why are we in the healing market? To me, and I can maybe start with what it personally means to me. It is one of the arenas of healthcare where I feel you have the biggest impact on lives. You know, we talk about our life or death matter. That is truly what it is in healthcare most times. Right. You are, you have in your hands people's lives. And it's not just the patient who is a lot of the times the focus of our conversations. Lives are much broader than that one person, right? right? It's families that are impacted by that one person who is a patient. It's the communities that come together to support that person. It's the caregivers. It's the people who operate and maintain these facilities. They're all impacted by what happens inside right. of a healing facility. Huh? So to me, healing is what occurs inside of these spaces. Huh? But what we practice huh, is how do we make these spaces heal better huh? mm -hmm. and heal differently? Huh? and heal in more meaningful ways that are humane and deeply, deeply thinking about empathy towards the people that are in these spaces and using these every day. Huh? Right. So that to me is what happens. You know, it's, and it's not a one and done thing. Once, once someone has been in a healing facility, they're connected to it for life because yeah. your life has changed because of it. How does architecture itself impact patient well-being and healing? There's so many ways that it does, right? And if you think about what we call evidence-based design, it's looking at true data and research that have been completed over the years to see how a lot of variables can impact healing. Huh? Mm -hmm. And I don't think anyone really is going to say it's not accurate that having access to nature or daylight or the ability to spend time with your families and loved ones in these spaces, all of those things can be game changers. But what is also game changing is how well can caregivers function in these spaces? Huh? The 
operations that happen? How effective and efficient can they be? How much do they increase patient safety? How much do they increase caregiver safety? Because workplace violence is also a really, really big impactor today. And a part of the reason why we see some of the staffing shortages we're seeing is the pandemic really changed how we think about working in healthcare. Huh? Right. So it's about the patients and how we can keep them safe, but also heal them faster by exposing them to things like nature and daylight um, and having more access to the humane care mm-hmm. of people. And the way that you can do that is by taking away the iterative tasks that caregivers were used to doing, like stocking supplies, and actually spending their time by the bedside. What we need is that person who knows what they're doing by our bedside instead of away from us doing something else that has to do with equipment stocking. So I feel like those are all factors that change how we heal. So when you're when you're working through that, what are some of the key principles of designing healthcare spaces for healing? So you, you talk about getting them away from a stock room. The, is it the flow uh, from the OR back to a patient room? I mean, talk through that a little bit. Yes. <laughs> All the above, right? I, I feel like you know healthcare now. Um, maybe I should stop talking and let you do the talking. Absolutely. It's, it's, I don't think I can ever, you know, in a short period of time describe that, right? And that's the reason a lot of us have been in this profession for many years. Because True. even today, after having done this for 17 or so years, I don't know everything. And I never will. That's the beauty of continuing to grow and learn and experiment and explore is there is always a better way of doing something. And that's kind of the spirit of, you know, when you asked me earlier, what does healing mean to us? It's knowing all of these things, understanding how we can incorporate some of these things into design, but also constantly saying, but what else is out there? Do you bounce things off of your colleagues when those things come up and you're you're constantly sharing information across, uh, you know, our six studios? Absolutely. I mean, that is a part of the reason we have six studios and all of them very geographically diverse mm-hmm. because our clients in those areas approach things differently. Not always, huh? but it does occur. And the ability to tap into that knowledge base that is from a client that maybe you would have never had any exposure to if you were only in one location. And then asking, is this right for this client, right? It's once again, one size doesn't fit all, huh? But there might be things that someone is innovating on and doing differently that you can take into account and change it in a way that makes sense for your situation in this specific context. But you wouldn't have that knowledge if you didn't have those studios that. So all of our principals in the six different studios we meet pretty consistently because it's it's not just for us to understand what someone else is doing, but to bring to the forefront some innovative ideas that we are seeing and also so that we can be more proactive. You know, I always right. say it's, this. It's so. a knowledge share, right? You're not just walking through a project timeline Correct. Or, or what a client's needs are, although those are extremely important, of course, but you're you're sharing knowledge and information so that Yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, there have been times where a client is reacting to something that's happening in the market, right? Let's, I feel like you're going to ask me some questions about AI, but I'm going to say AI right now. But there are things happening in the AI world that healthcare is adopting because it's beneficial to what we are doing in the healthcare realm. So our clients are doing it. 
we cannot wait five years from now when they have already adopted what they're doing and start thinking about how do we start planning and designing to accommodate what they are doing. That is reactive design and that's reactive thinking. Mm -hmm. What we need to be able to do is look into the future and be able to forecast with some degree of certainty, how is AI going to change our world? And how can we be a part of changing that world instead of a result of it? Mm -hmm. You know, we become one with it and we then create what healthcare needs to look like as opposed to reacting right. to what healthcare and could trying become. to retrofit it in. Yes. Yeah. Uh-huh. yeah, that makes sense. Healthcare architecture has evolved significantly in recent years, and you're starting to allude to a few things, but specifically to what, what are some of the insights into how architectural design in general has changed to meet the evolving needs of healthcare facilities and their patients over just the last five to 10 years, I would say? There's been I would say exponential changes, just like we see in many other realms of the world that we live in. Healthcare might be slightly a slower adopter than some of the other fields. A little more resistant to it change. It is a little yeah. more resistant to change. And I get why, because you're dealing with people's lives. It's not always an easy decision right. to make to pivot. It's a big risk. It is. It's a big risk. They're also, healthcare is also bound by a lot of policies that impact many, many groups of people. And Mm -hmm. it's not always easy to change those policies. But thinking about what has changed in design over the past decade or so, I would say that going back to the topic of how do we give the caregivers more face time with the patients. That's really important. They are performing at the top of their licenses, or you want them to be performing at the top of their licenses. Right. Because, I mean, caregivers are not easy to come by anymore. Huh? Yeah. Um, and we're seeing that with many, many clients across multiple regions. Huh? To be able to give them that face time and the ability to perform at the top of their license, that also means that just like us, they need to then have some of those tasks assigned to someone else or something else. Yes. And what we are seeing some of our clients adopt more and more are is automation, huh? Is things like automated guided vehicles and robots that can do these things very efficiently, don't necessarily have very much human interaction at all. And they are very efficient and effective and much cheaper to deploy in healthcare systems. How that impact design is then you have to start thinking about uh, things like pathways. You know, how are these robo- robots or AGVs traveling through the system? Mm-hmm. Sometimes it can be awkward for people to see a robot walking around, uh, depending on the generational True. differences. Yeah. Yeah. I'm sure young kids today would be very excited to see a robot. That's right. not necessarily the feeling everybody has. Huh? Yeah. So you have to think about how are they, what is the horizontal conveyance for them looking like? What is the vertical? How are they getting from floor to floor? And you have to accommodate that early in design and you have to be thinking about things like that. The other thing that I can definitely thinking th- see is that deep, deep connection between the community and healthcare facilities. So yep. you don't just go to a healthcare facility or a campus when you are ill anymore. Huh? Right. It's about staying well. Huh? It's not about getting ill and then 
having to go to a um, facility. So it's about understanding nutrition. It's about having walking trails on the uh, campuses. And I'm being kind of glib here because it's, you know, every time we talk about this, we throw out walking trails. Right. Those are great concepts. But the, the, the thing is, it's an integration between the community mm-hmm. and the healthcare system that has never existed on the scale before. Huh? And it's about the community not seeing the healthcare system as something different, as a unique entity. Huh? It gets absorbed More into ingrained. the fabric yeah. huh? yes, of the neighborhood. Huh? Yeah. And that, therefore, it becomes much easier to access this care and also destigmatize the care because behavioral health which for years was this thing that you kind of swept under the rug huh? and pretended and yeah. pretended exist huh? or you know i've even heard of people sending away loved ones so that their family and close friends didn't know that you had right. a mental illness right. in your family huh it is no longer that huh are there many things that we still need to be doing in that realm yes huh? yeah but we have taken some very, very meaningful steps towards that in the past few years. Huh? Interesting. So those are some of the big things, yeah. the big thing ideas that I see that have been changing. Huh? So one of the things that you just touched on was the technology component. And I was thinking of, and you've already kind of touched on this with the robots, but between the technology and some of the telemedicine and digital health that have been coming increasingly important to healthcare, how, how does architecture play a role in accommodating these advancements while still maintaining a human touch in healthcare settings? And you started to touch on it when you're like, we've got to be aware of the path and horizontal and vertical. But what are some of the other considerations that, that you guys are thinking of? It's finding the right balance. Huh? And that sounds easy, yeah. but it's not. Huh? Right. Right. Huh? We work with different clients very differently because you have to understand the community you're serving. Huh? You have to have a deep, deep level of knowledge of the demographics huh? and what they would be open to. Because we have been in communities where it is an older generation mm-hmm. that while they have things like smartphones, are not the most comfortable using it on a regular basis. Huh? Right. While they may have access to kiosks when they enter a facility, they would probably beeline it to a person huh? right. because that's that's they, better for they them. They don't huh? want their facility looking like it's out of the movie Tron or something right. like that, uh, right? Yeah. Yes, and that's uncomfortable mm-hmm. to groups of people, and I get that. Huh? But then there is also a generation of people who grew up on their iPads, huh? right? That's I'd, I would rather do a virtual visit any day than right. have to drive to the clinic. Huh? Right. That might only be 10 minutes from me yep. and actually speak to a real person huh? when I could get it done in 15 to 20 minutes right. sitting in the convenience of my home. Huh? So having that understanding of what is it that the community needs huh? and what's going to allow them to have access to care in the most convenient way that helps them feel comfortable is really what we are thinking about. So when we think about technology and finding that balance that we're talking about, it's about understanding the people you're serving. And that, I think, can result in just what is best for the patients as well as for the hospital system. That includes things like smart patient rooms, Mm -hmm. you know, the ability to control everything around you. Right. That can make you feel empowered, huh? It's great to have the daylight. Uh, well, because so much of what they're experiencing is out of their control. Correct. Because they're in this facility and they're having yes, uh, something done or they're being monitored or they're sick. Or, 
and, and putting some of that control back in their arms is going to make them feel a little more safe, yeah, a little more comfortable absolutely. with their surroundings. Yeah, who doesn't love, you know, being able to hold a steering wheel as opposed to being in an autonomous right? car? Like, I would be right. the person who is like, put me in an autonomous <laughs> car any day. But if you asked, you know, all of BSA at this point, right. I would say probably about 80% of people would say, I want to have my hands on that steering right. wheel, huh? So I think that's important to remember when you're thinking about technology and having human care at the same time is understanding what would be accepting. The other thing is, I don't think we should just be accepting of the fact that people don't like kiosks. You have to push the boundaries. Huh? Right. And you have to know where you can give that gentle nudge to help the community get to a place where they are comfortable using technology because it makes lives easier. Huh? Right. So always thinking about the people, but also knowing that just because people are not comfortable doesn't mean we can't push them just a little bit. Uh, mm -hmm. That's good. I like that. As we look at, so continue on that trend a little bit. As we look into the future, what trends or innovations do you foresee in healthcare architecture and design that will continue to shape the healing practice? I definitely feel that behavioral health is going to change and it's going to change for the better huh? mm. it's it's going to become and you know there's there's a great great partner architect that we work with who said to me we should stop calling it behavioral health huh? because it's not people's behavior that is leading them down this path because what that when you say behavioral health what you are saying is if you change your behavior you It'll can get better. It. Right. Yeah. I'll fix it. That is not the case, right? It's an illness, just like a physical illness. Huh? So we're going back to calling it mental health at this point, mm -hmm. because it is about your mental health. Huh? And the fact that it has become more mainstream and we are trying to make it more mainstream through how we design it is incredibly important. The ability to destigmatize mental health and make it a part of regular care. You know, you go to go get your physical care at this facility, you also go to get your mental health taken care of at this facility. There is no two different doorways. A little more comprehensive. There are not, not two different yeah. facilities because as soon as you park and someone sees you near the mental health facility, they know you're going there. There's a there. stigma attached to yes. it. Yes. Yeah. And I think that's all going to change. It's going to be more integrated. Um, and I am excited about that because we need it, right? A lot of the gun violence that we talk about, huh? a lot of many, a lot of the workplace violence that we talk about, huh? no matter what political side you're on, sure. right? There's, there's just challenges with having mental health not being taken care of in the same way as physical health. Huh? So I think that's a big, big driver in the world right now. And we're going to see that transform. Huh? I do think that the way that our client gives care and I'm talking about the entry of Google and Amazon and Walgreens and CVS into what used to be traditional healthcare. You know, these were not names that even 10 years ago you thought of as right. a place that you would go for your care. Huh? Or go to, or they needs. come to you. Right. Or yeah. that. Or they'd send a drone your way. Yeah, huh? That's where I was thinking too. Yeah. yeah. It's in. I am curious to see where that goes. Huh? You know, I think the verdict is still out on how well they're going to do, but they have resources behind them that traditional healthcare systems don't always have. It's it's the number crunching analytical data that they have. Even Amazon, you think about it, the in, the consumer information that they have changes how they approach huh? healing. Huh? Yeah, and their their speed of delivery too. 
um, in, in being able to get medicine or prescriptions or, or things like that. It's that that's really interesting. Yeah. Well, let's go ahead and talk about the thing that you and I are both interested in. By the time this podcast comes out, you will have already presented at the conference you're about to attend. But I do want to I, I want to touch on AI. I know it's an interest that we share. It's an ever evolving world. How do you think it will impact the healthcare industry, and what what are you most interested about as it pertains to AI? So, healthcare is already using AI, right? And it's they're using it to diagnose diseases. They're using it to cross compare data across large segments of people, mm-hmm. and it's the big data machine learning component that healthcare is predominantly using. It's, I have all of this information. How can I distill it and make meaningful things out of it? Which is very fascinating to me. What we on the design side are looking at are many, many different things. Like in an, in an integrated AE firm like ours, what we're thinking of is we have, it's not just design that we do. Huh? We do marketing, which you're a big part of. Huh? <laughs> um, we do hiring and talent acquisition and retention, which is a big part of it. We do project management, which is a big part of it. And AI can impact all of those different segments of what we call the business of architecture. Huh? Right. And to me, that's exciting. It's not the individual impact that it could have on isolated small things that we do, but together in an integrated, meaningful way, when it all comes together, what can it result in? So the presentation I'm doing is about all of those things. It's about social media, it's about marketing, it's about project management, and it's about design. And it's about leveraging things like ChatGPT or BARD. It's about leveraging MidJourney. A lot of people, when we talk about AI, and just justifiably so, feel like AI equates to losing jobs. Correct. And that's a hard place to be in because I do feel like AI will take over some jobs. But what it gives us the capability of is learn creative skills. Mm-hmm. There is going to be a certain set of skills that AI that is trying to function like a human can never get to, huh? Right. And those are the things that as humans we should be aspiring to, are those skills. And what can we do with the additional time, like you said? I mean, even if it's from a basic day-to-day standpoint of uh, email responses and calendar checks and, you know, things like that, what can it free us up to do more of that machines can't do? Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, we can do more with the same amount of time that we have, huh? And one of the examples I was going to share is Zoom has what they call the AI companion. We have all Mm -hmm. gotten used to using Zoom in the past three years. And they have an AI companion. And when you deploy it, if you happen to be five minutes late to a group meeting, it'll give you a quick summary of everything that's been said so far, right? So you don't have to sit there and go, can someone please repeat to me right. what the past five minutes... You don't have to stop the minutes? flow of the meeting. Yes. Yeah. Not only that, it'll give you a meeting summary, huh? So that instead of spending your time taking meeting notes, you could read through the summary and check it for accuracy because that's one thing I always say. Yep. You can't just rely oh, on AI course. to do an accurate job. Right. You have to cross-check it, but it gives you a foundational basis that you can work off of. Huh? Yep. It reduces the amount of time it would have taken you to do those meetings. And you can be engaged in the conversation instead of, like you said, having a note taker, even just if you missed the whole thing, I know it can recap and give you the to-dos that were discussed in there. Yeah, it's fascinating. So I'm going to start to wrap up here by asking a couple questions. You you mentioned mental health, physical health. Let's talk about you and some of your interests that probably help you as busy as you are with your 
mental and physical health. Let's talk about mountain climbing. I know you're into mountain climbing. What's your favorite memory of mountain climbing and what do you have your sights set on next? Oh my goodness. So I got into mountain climbing. You didn't ask me this, but I'm going to tell you. No, please. (laughs) I got into mountain climbing because I decided to go to Japan by myself. Um, And my boyfriend, who is now my fiance at that time, said, hey, did you consider maybe hiking up Mount Fuji? Huh? I had not, huh? You know, that's not something Most that had crossed my mind. Most people consider right, that, huh? sure. And once he said it to me, it was, it like was stuck in my head. Yes, yeah. yes. <laughs> it was there and I couldn't get rid of it. And no matter what I did, I was like, I need to do this. So I rearranged my plans to be able to do that. Huh? Um, did not prepare for it at all whatsoever. Huh? And did it solo, which was incredible, wow. by the way. Like I, I have never seen such beauty from the top of that mountain at 5 a.m. when the sun was rising and the clouds were actually below us because we were so high. It is the most incredible experience I've had. It was also one of the toughest things, actually, maybe the toughest thing at that point that I'd ever done. Yeah. I got back down after (laughs) summiting Mount Fuji and I finally got connection on my phone because you don't have any while you're going up it. And my fiance goes, hey, I didn't want to tell you this because I don't want to freak you out. But the person who climbed Mount Fuji that I knew about is a Marine. And he was like 25 and in the best shape of his life when he did it. And he said that he almost felt like he was going to die while doing this. (laughs) And I was like, I'm kind of glad you didn't tell me that because I'm none of those things. I'm none of those things. I am definitely not 25. I'm not a Marine. I wouldn't have done it. I was not in good shape. Yes. Um, But that made me think about the fact that I love doing things like that. I love pushing my body to the limit. And so the most recent one, which is my favorite because it's the most recent, is we were in Ireland and we did the four highest peaks in Ireland in the same day. huh? And it goes in a horseshoe loop. So it's not that you have to go to multiple places to get to this. So that makes it a little bit easier. Right. But it was windy, but beautiful. You see these spectacular lakes as you're going through the peaks. And I was glad to have done it. That's so amazing. The, the next thing I think we are hoping is maybe Kilimanjaro. I've oh. been wanting to do that for a while and just haven't gotten around to making it happen. Just so, haven't gotten around to yes, it. I love uh, that. <laughs> well, tell me about your passion for tea, because I know that's another interest that you have as you're sipping on some while we're recording. Well, you told it. me not to sip on it right. because <laughs> I made slurpy sounds. Um, but I love tea. So I grew up in India and tea is ingrained into our into culture. The culture right? yes. yeah. Everyone drinks tea. I wasn't allowed to drink it. I think that adds to the mystery because when I was younger, my mom was like, no, you can't have any tea. Um, so I made it a point to go find tea and sneak some. But when the pandemic, and I, I drank tea, but when the pandemic started, I was looking to grow in something that was different than architecture. And I came across a blog where a person called themselves a tea sommelier. Huh. And I was like, what? I mean, I've heard about about wine sommelier. Yes, but what is a tea sommelier? I I didn't know such a thing existed. So I did a little bit more research and I found out that there is this great Canadian institute that does do classes in this and gives you a certification as a tea sommelier. So I did that for 
a year and a half, a little over a year and a half, I took only one class at a time and it teaches you everything. It teaches you about the history of tea, the terroirs, the types of tea, the different regions that it comes huh. from. We had to do a lot of blind tea tasting where you couldn't oh, wow. see the leaves and you didn't know what tea it was. And that was a part of the test is you had to tell them what tea was and what region it came from. Wow. Um, and I was always freaked out before every exam. <laughs> But I learned a lot, and it really helped me develop my palate for tea. I have a more nuanced palate now from having gone through it. And at some point of time in my life, I'd love to do something more with it than just being able to say that I'm a tea sommelier. Right. So I'm excited. That's awesome. Well, I want to thank you for coming on to the show and sharing so much about this. I know we'll have you back on to talk more, but uh, thank you for giving this nice overview of what is healing. So. Appreciate it. Great being here. Thanks. Thank you. I'd like to thank Melanie for joining us on this episode of BSA by Design. We've got some tremendous and wildly interesting team members here at BSA, though I don't think you'll find me on top of Mount Fuji anytime soon. Thanks again, Melanie. If you're interested in learning more about BSA Life Structures, we encourage you to visit our website at bsalifestructures.com. There's a link in the show notes to contact us for more information. Be sure to subscribe to BSA by Design wherever you get your podcasts so you don't miss an episode. And we've got more content and stories to share with you through various platforms. So be sure to follow us on LinkedIn, YouTube, Facebook, Instagram, and X. That's going to do it for this episode. Join us again next time on BSA by Design. (laughs) 